Whenever I visit France, I always see lots of top bottles for sale, but when I get back home, those same bottles can be much harder to find, if not impossible. That's why I use IdealWine.com. At IdealWine.com, I can buy wines directly from France for delivery directly to my home. They have new auctions every week, and the fixed price selection is equally awesome. Clos Rouchard, Chateau Reyes, and Ulysse Colon, as well as many more greats from all over France, are regularly available on the website. Best of all, it is simple and hassle-free to buy them. Ideal Wine handles all the customs and logistics hurdles for you and for me. Wines are ordered with a couple of clicks, and then they arrive. It is simple. Check out IdealWine.com for more information. That's I-D-E-A-L-W-I-N-E.com to find what you'd like to be drinking. I'm Levy Dalton, and this is All Drink to That, where we get behind the scenes of the wine business. Kevin Pike, the national sales point man for Michael Skrennick Wines, joins us on the show today to speak about categories like grower champagne, Austria, Germany, and how to build a national market. He's been called an intellectual juggernaut by none other than Terry Thies. Kevin Pike is on the show today. Hello, sir. How are you? I'm very well. Thanks for letting me have at the time today. Great to see you. So you have a long career uh, working at Skernick Wines. You've been there for over a decade. But uh, how did you get into wine in the in the first spot? What, what what were the influences that kind of drew you towards wine? I got into wine kind of in a in a roundabout way, in a more general way, I think, than going into wine just for wine's sake. I was very interested in lots of things that had to do with the whole kind of grand dinner experience. So I was. When I was younger, my parents didn't really drink a whole lot. There was never alcohol in the house. They would have wine for a special occasion, but nothing for an every night dinner. And my parents uh, passed away when I was 17. And some very good family friends of, of ours um, named Tom and Ann Weeks, were, were, they kind of took us in and kind of said, please come to our house for dinner once a week and, and enjoy our family dinner. And growing up, family dinner was very important for us. It was a time when we'd sit around the table talk about our day, talk about uh, what was going on in our lives. It was a very communal kind of cultural kind of time. And they did the same thing, but they always did it in a very different style. So they did it always in the dining room every night with like fine china, with silver, and wine was always a part of that meal. So for my younger brother and I, my older brother was in, in college at the time, but my younger brother and I would go over and we were a little bit shocked by that because we weren't experiencing that in our normal life. We would eat in the dining room for like Thanksgiving or for a holiday, but never for our every night uh, meal. And they always allowed their sons. Their sons were at the same age as um, my brothers and I, so we all knew each other through school. And they would always offer us some wine to try. And that was also a little bit strange because we were underage, of course. But, you know, they offered it to their children. And, and they think they wanted to demystify the whole alcohol issue, especially, you know, growing up in the late 80s, you know, being in high school in the late 80s, that makes it a little, it was it was a time when I think there's a lot of experimentation going on and they wanted to make sure that their, their children weren't going out drinking um, and experimenting without supervision or having someone around to kind of monitor it or 
help be a guide through it. So they offered us wine, and that was a very that was interesting for both Scott and me. I think we we tried it and were were fascinated with it a little bit, but we we also kind of were fascinated with the whole dining experience of being eating off of china all the time and silver and, and having that that experience and the one wine that really changed um my view of wine was a 1984 inglenook um carbono that they that they opened for us which was something that that's I'm, really cool i've never had that wine before and and it was something that was very uh, it, it really made me think about wine in a different way because it was so complex to me it was so complex and so interesting and this was a what year? So how old this was, was it? This was back in 89, so it was probably, yeah, five years old, not very old. But still, it gave us some time. Exactly. And then we would um, go over there, and it would be, you know, we would make that a, like a tradition. Every week we would have dinner over there. And that kind of started me into a path of thinking about um, the, the kind of the whole grand dinner experience, mm-hmm. which was something that I wasn't really thinking about before. When I went on to college, I studied English literature and was fascinated by Proust and like Edith Wharton and E.M. Forrester. And I, I was and I they was write about dining and dining food and, and mannerisms and celebrations exactly. And and so that was really taken by all of that. And I started then to move orient my life around that kind of experience of the grand dinner. I started collecting antiques, for example, and I would um, I would buy silver. I got very interested in collecting uh, silverware sets. So I would, I would buy coin silver, and I was in school outside of Philadelphia, so there's lots of very good, um, you know, Eastern um, places where you can buy antique silver from, you know, Tifton Whiting out of out of out of Wilmington, Delaware was a, somebody I collected that made uh, patterns back in the in the eighteen hundreds and that's coined, really cool. Yeah, and I and I just wanted to integrate all of that into what the dining experience was like. So I I would like buy Limoges china on estate auctions, and I bought a big dining room table when I was twenty, and it was so I was kind of doing something that was a little bit. How many other young guys were in the room when you were no, no one's raising doing the paddle for that? <laughs> no one's really doing that. So, I mean, but then, then what came next then was an interest in cooking and, and then creating the dining. Because with the plates, you need something to put on it. Exactly. And so for me, France was the place to really explore. And um, France, for me, epitomized the, the grandest tradition of both food and wine and that kind of dining experience. And so I delved into cookbooks and started cooking and would buy old uh, cookbooks and try to replicate recipes from the 1900s. And and then that led to doing dinner parties. And so I would, that's what I was really working towards or having fun with was uh, experience that entire, that entire evening event with, you know, with, with music, with, with the right furniture, with the right silverware, with the right china, with the right food, with the right wine. And so it was kind of a, a whole cultural thing that I was exploring more than just wine per se. And you made a personal connection with a meal and had really followed that interest through and then shared it with others. Exactly. And um, then through college, I had a professor who who was very much into wine. He was big into Bordeaux and he had a sabbatical my senior year and I lived in his house while he was away and he had a wine cellar. It was mostly old 61, 66s, you know, good vintages of, of Bordeaux. Sounds great. And I was able to kind of, you know, work in his cellar a little bit. I reorganized it, tried to help him make sense of what he had there. He had forgotten what was what was down there in some cases. And, um, and then I started like, re- he was subscribing to things like, you know, Wine Spectator and Robert Parker, things that I had not been exposed to before. And I would start to read those and then get a sense of what 
people were buying and, and what was interesting. And then I would drive to New York from Philadelphia and then purchase wine up here. And I would, I would then bring it back and share it with my brother. So I'd buy like a case of something. And then um, I would, four bottles would go to Tom Weeks, who was this influential, you know, person in my, in my earlier life. And then also my younger brother, Scott. And then we would just start collecting that way. And it was always cheaper to buy wine here in New York than it was in Ohio, where I grew up, because Ohio has a state minimum mandate for pricing. So it was much more, much more expensive. It's probably especially by the case if you're, that's exactly. a smart way to go about it. But it was just, it was a different time. This was, you know, this was in the 90, 89, 90, uh, well, no, a little bit later. It was 92, 93 when I was buying wine up here. Um, and at that time, you know, you could buy almost anything for $35 or less in, in like of great Bordeaux. Not the first growth, but like Lenchbage and uh, Pichon Baron, Pichon Longueville, all of that was $35 or less. I mean, and the world has totally changed since that time. Um, I think I came up in wine at a really opportunistic time because the, uh, the great wines were still accessible to a normal person. And I think those times have really changed as far as what you have to pay for Grand Cru Burgundy, what you have to pay for Great Bordeaux, for Great Piedmont wine, those prices are almost always out of reach of a, of a normal person, a younger person trying to come up, unless you're in the business. It's it's something you really have to save up for. And even then, it might be too much of a stretch. Exactly. So I was doing that. I really wanted to be a writer, a novelist. That's what was, that was my dream. And um, I, the professor came back. His name was Phil Weinstein, and I'm still in contact with him. And he was a Faulkner scholar, and, but also taught on Proust and Joyce and modernism. And so I, I had a personal friendship with him, partly because of my studies there, but then also because of the, the wine interest. And he said that he, he had a flat in the 14th in, in Paris, and he normally uh, lent it out for... Uh, for different people when he wasn't on sabbatical living over there. And he said, I don't have any renters. Do you want to go live in Paris, you know, rent-free? That was nice of him. And I was, I was like, I would love to do that. that yeah. was, that's a perfect idea. So, you know, I took that time. I, I bought myself a laptop computer and, and went over there. And I would spend the evenings writing. And I'd get up in the morning. And, and around 11, 12, I would walk through Montparnasse and, and then get uh, a baguette or some sandwich along the way, go look at a museum and, and uh, walk along the Seine and just explore what Paris had to offer. And for me, it was, it was a magical time, a, very, a great time of, of learning, of living, um, exploration of, of different foods, of culture, of art that I had never seen. Um, and I would also take then side trips to Loire, down to Bordeaux, to Burgundy, um, just to, so I could also further that along. And then when that time period was over, I came back and I, I really had nothing to do except, I, know I was still trying to write, but I was not I needed to make money of some sure. some kind. It's helpful. <laughs> it's again. helpful yeah. to live. So um, my younger brother Scott said, "He's like, you know, you need to. Um, wine is is a, a, a kind of a hobby for you, and yeah, and and you you really enjoy it. Um, why don't you go get a job in a wine shop?" And I thought, okay, that's not a bad idea. And there was a there was a wine shop in in Columbus uh, named Bernardo's. Bob Bernardo's the owner of that shop, and. Um, I went in there, applied for a job. Right, it was right around the holidays, and, and he was hiring for to stock, uh, you know, imp- make his uh, staff a little bit larger for the holidays. And I easily got a job there, which was fun. And for me, it was a little bit ironic because when I was in high school, I would buy wine there, kind of when I was underage, because I had this interest. He's um, like, hey, my best customer is back for a no, he job. Didn't, he didn't recognize me. Thank goodness. <laughs> I, I told him about thing. it later. Yeah. I was like, you know, when I was when I was in high school, I used to buy from you, but. Um, but you know, when when you kind of walk into a wine shop and you have some knowledge about wine, it's obviously it's obviously you're not coming to buy a bottle to 
be intoxicated by it. You're mm-hmm. buying it because you're exploring. They don't even ask. They don't really like, ask yeah. your ID, you know? Right. So, I mean, that was my strategy. Because everybody else was like, where's the six packs of beer? Right. I remember going to the to my high school prom and, you know, I said, you know, don't, don't wear a really fancy dress and, you know, we're not going to wear tuxedos. We're not going to look like idiots. You know, let's just go as a, as normal people, no flowers, no corsages or anything. And we're going to go out to a restaurant and we're going to order wine, you know, and we were able to get away with it just because we, you know, I asked questions about the wine list to to the server, you know, so it wasn't just kind oh, of like. Oh, because if you'd worn a tux, it would have been like, obviously. Uh, he, he's guy. on a high school. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Right. So, um, Who's this guy I think he is? James yeah, Bond? Exactly. So we, um, I, I had the job there for a couple of years and then I still had this writing um, bug and I left that position and went down to Memphis because the, the, the fiction I was writing was based in in Memphis, and oh okay, I was I was so interested was it in Faulkner kind of. Well, I was interested thing. in southern, northern things. Ohio is a border state; it's a kind of a complicated history, and you know, as far as race and class and those types of things, I was still kind of interested in, even from the the Faulkner stuff and the Proust and, and everything that I'd read before in college. I was interested still that on the American side. Uh, but not as deep south as a Faulkner would be, you know. Okay. I didn't feel anywhere qualified to talk about race in in any Maybe meaningful like, way. But uh, hard as a lonely hunter, something right, like that. Exactly that kind of thing. Right. So I, I went down to back down to Memphis and lived there for for a while, and then I then I thought, okay, I need to get to New York. If I'm going to publish, I need to be in New York. And I sent out some resumes at different um, publishing houses, and I had an offer from St. Martin's Press here, and that's so, cool. So I was like, this is great. I'm going to leave. Leave Memphis. I finished up my lease. Um, what very, was Memphis like, though? I mean, Memphis was Memphis. I love living in Memphis because um, I love the blues and I love jazz, and so yeah. it's, it's a wonderful place to live for for music. I also love um, kind of soul food and and uh, you know barbecue and that type of thing. So um, one of the great advantages of having the job I have now is that I, I travel all over the United States for, for work. That must be great. And, and, you know, I get to go eat at great barbecue places and great restaurants and all, all over the place. And like uh, a friend of mine, like Josh Reynolds, for example, will compare notes. Okay, what's the best barbecue place? And He's a good and, guy to talk to about and, restaurants. Exactly. In this part of Texas. And then you can just make a side trip there or something. And um, Memphis on the wine side is is very, very, well, all of Tennessee is kind of complicated. And I didn't know this when I lived there, but it's something I have to know now for my current position is that every state has different laws governing wine and alcohol sa- sales since prohibition. So um, every state has a different way in which wine can be sold. So you know, in some states you can sell wine in grocery stores, in some states you can't. In some states you have dry counties and wet counties. Some some states it's all wet. Or um, and then in, in Tennessee there is no such thing as a, as a statewide distributor. Oh, I didn't so know that. It's one of the most complicated states to do business in. I have nine distributors in Tennessee currently, because wow. you they're broken down by. Region, so you have like Memphis as a region and Nashville as a region and Chattanooga, um, and so you can't have one person that's selling for you in the entire state, and that makes that makes doing business there, as you can imagine, very very complicated. Wow. Yeah, so it's the opposite of like New York, where you can have one person selling upstate and Long Island and the city and everywhere, okay. and then it's opposite of a state like Wyoming or Utah, where the the government or Pennsylvania, sure, you know the, the government, the state government is running the alcohol, and you're selling to the state. There's definitely only one salesman because it's right. the government. So a very different kind of thing. But I, I was buying wine down there too because there was a there was a good retail shop there, and I don't know if I'm sure they're still in business, but I haven't seen it. As Buster's was the wine shop that I would buy from down there, and then um, 
and I was trying to live that writerly life, you know. You come, sure, bottle you, of wine. You kind of write all day, and then you come home, you open a bottle of wine, you drink the whole bottle and, and roast a chicken for yourself or do something like that. And Porches um, are big in Tennessee. Exactly. Like sit on a porch, <laughs> right. rocking chair. Right, exactly. Watch the world go by. And then... Um, and then after that, I, I then I when I had this position, then I, I came back to to Columbus, Ohio, where I, where I um, my brother was still living, and I still had family there, and and of course Tom and Ann were there, and so I was biding some time between taking the position in New York and and getting things packed up and coming back from Memphis. And another retail wine shop in Columbus found out I was in town and said, please come interview for this position. Um, and it was a gourmet food store uh, with a wine program run out of it. And the, the person who was, was leaving was a, a guy named Chris Wheeler. And he wanted to, he went to take a position on the wholesale side. And so they needed okay. a, a buyer. And so I was like, you know, I'm not really interested in doing this, but you know, because I, I'm kind of, my heart was set on writing. And, um, but then I said, okay, I'll go interview for the job. So I interview for the job and they make me an offer. And the offer is, is more money than the St. Martin's press job. And I was thinking to myself, okay, living in Manhattan at this salary or living in Columbus, Ohio at this salary, I, I'll take the, the wine job, you know? And then that started- Lucky then, for us, my yeah, friend, exactly. I gotta tell you. That's the you only time I mean? a wine job probably pays more than another job, you know? Right. And um, so I did that and I was there for three years and that's really where I started to learn a lot. And um, being, you know, being the head buyer, you would taste everything. Taste everything. That's, if people wanna learn, I think that is the, the best way to learn is to work in restaurants or retail where you get to taste all the time. And um, my predecessor had a very good uh, job of building, um, giving the store a reputation for cult California Cabernet. Um, so all, at this time, this is when Araujo and Bryant and all that stuff was coming out, you yeah. know? And that's kind of waned in, in, in more recent years. But at that time, it was, it was everything. Everybody wanted those things. Silver Oak was allocated. Right. You know, Marcuson was on-premise only. Um, and it was a very different time. But since he had done that, the store had that reputation and was still on the mailing list for, or on the list for all those wines. And it allowed me to kind of come in and totally do something different. And um, I kind of reset the store by uh, great variety instead of by region. Um, then I got very interested in Burgundy because that was still my, that was my kind of ideal. This is what wine is, that the, the epitome of wine is Burgundy for me. It was think at that, that time. the Paris uh, opportunity kind of allowed you to see that maybe earlier than some Americans? I think that's true. Uh, I, I went from Bordeaux to Burgundy quite quickly, and then I had a hard time coming back to Bordeaux, actually. Because a lot of people were still focused on the big Cabernet estate model. Exactly. Whether it be in this country or in Bordeaux, for a longer than you. So Right. And there was a time when I didn't drink Bordeaux at all, and I actually like sold yesterday. some. <laughs> like <laughs> exactly, but but then in and all that and all this stuff that I mentioned that I bought when I was still at Swarthmore College was I still had that. Oh, know? okay, and okay. So I still had all these Bordeaux, these from the eighty five, eighty six. When I was buying in New York, eighty twos were gone because everyone had talked about that vintage. It was a very sure. high, highly acclaimed vintage, but you could buy eighty one. Eighty one was for me. I liked it very much. It was a little bit fresher in style, not as rich. 83, I thought was really good too. And I could buy 85s, 86s, 88s, 89s, and 90s. And that's sure when I was buying. You could buy a lot of 85s. Exactly. So, you know, right. it wasn't hyped. So the only, the only vintage in that, in that decade I really avoided was 84 and 87. Sure. You know, so I had a lot of those wines and I've now gone back to them and now they're really interesting. 30 years on, you know, they're, I, I'm starting to enjoy them more and more now. Um, 
So anyway, I started in this job at Hills, and I had a very good relationship with a chef at the store, and that furthered, you know, the the cooking side of it. And so I really got into this grand dinner idea even more. So it was retail, but you could also eat there. At the time, well, you could, but it, it, you can now more. But at that time, they were early in the development of that idea. This is before like a Whole Foods or something like that, which was very popular, which has now made that popular. Back then, it wasn't really. We had outdoor seating. But, you know, in Ohio, half the year, you're not going to be out there. So, yeah. And um, But then I could buy, you know, at cost, basically, you know, quails and foie gras and, sure. and all the food stuff that I wanted, get truffles and everything that Which I needed. had to be great for you. Perfect. A so, guy who likes to have dinner parties. Exactly. And so that, I really learned a lot from there. And then I made kind of burgundy and champagne my focus, which led me then into grower champagne. And um, Terry Thies had just got a distributor around that time in Ohio, which was Vanguard Wines. And he was selling champagne to them and the German Austrian wine to another distributor, which was Bowling Green Wines. And David Schilkenecht, who is now at um, with uh, Parker, was working for a wholesaler in Cincinnati called Vintner Select. And so I had a great resource, you know, you know, just 100 miles away, who was an authority on German and Austrian wines. Sure, one of the great and, minds of Germany exactly. and Austria. And so, I had I learned a lot from him, and it was great to do tastings with him. And I, I did a, a, a tasting with both Terry and with David because they were close. They exactly or, they knew or, each other from the close. from the DC when they were both in in uh, Washington DC. And um, so Terry was Terry was he was like, wow, I can't believe what you're doing, um, you know, with a champagne. And I, I it was a small store, you know. My my when I started there, the revenue was under a million. When I, I was there for three years, and I got it up over three by the time I left, and so it was a, it was a, it was still a very, you know, it was a small store in a in a in a gourmet food store. It wasn't a, like a standalone big retail high volume thing. I had a staff of me and, and a part time person, so it wasn't you know it wasn't a big thing. And, but I was still able to do around 250 cases or so of grower champagne out of that store a year. And I had- That's a, amazing, Kevin. But that Come was, on. But the prices were different back then too. Sure. You know, you could get a lot for under 30 retail. Um, and I would do, you know, I would, I, I would do tastings, blind tastings. And I, I mean, I really got it down to the point where almost everything I was selling was either, you know, tete de cuvées from Grand Marks or grower champagnes across the board. And were you selling it by- uh like communes, where you're saying like, "Hey, you should have something from Boozy. You should try that next to something." I did. From I did the Vermont. whole set on the on the on the shelves that that would have like Cote de Blanc would be in one section, and then you'd have Valley de la Marne, Montaigne de Rance, and Aube, and then um, and then at the bottom I put anything that was kind of a blend. Well, that's where see, all the that's where like the Clicos oh, and the sure. Moets would go because they and they the, didn't satisfy the criteria by which I put the and the they weren't at eye level as a result. Bummer. Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. <laughs> so. You know, it's an old grocer's trick. You know, you put sure. the milk and the eggs and the bread in the back of the store so you make people kind of walk through and pick up other stuff on the way. So it's an old grocer's trick. Anyway, so um, I, I got into that. Terry was impressed with what I was doing on the champagne. And he said, you know, why don't you, I want you to do something with the German wines. And I was like, I didn't even know you, do, you did German wines. Because it so, was a different <laughs> distributor. Sort of, Amazing. Yeah. yeah. And, and I think that's also something that's, that's curious with Terry's business is that it started, you know, obviously he started with German wines and then moved on into Austria and then to Champagne being the third category. But I think a lot of people now come to Terry through the Champagne category. It's, I'm sure that's true. You know, and then they get exposed to some of the other things. And so I was like, you know, wonderful. And he said, why don't you come with me to Germany next year? All you have to do is pay your ticket and I'll take care of, we'll take care of everything once you get over there. Awesome. And I was like, great. And I didn't think much of it. And then, you know, four months later, I get a card 
from Terry, handwritten card. Hey, still want you on this trip. Want to make sure you want to come. And I said, yes, I'd like to come. And on that trip was like Chris Cree from uh, Master of Wine out in New Jersey. And okay. Stephen Geddes, who was a Master Sommelier. And it was a really great trip. And we had, it opened my eyes to a world that I had never seen before. Um, and I then started doing a little bit more with, with, with German wines and, and making a point of being in Germany. Langdon Schivrick was a, a distributor out of Solon, Ohio, also an importer. Yeah, based out in Ohio, sure. That's right. And so David Schivrick had, um, at that time, he had Shav for half the country and Kermit had it for the other half. And he had like Duran LaRose and he had uh, Max Ferdinand Richter from Mosul, from Brandenburger, Eufer, Eufer Zonenauer. So I went on a trip with him and was able to taste some wines with him. And the, I really got into German wine at that point. And Germany for me became the the kind of white equivalent of what red burgundy was for me. And then I got very heavily into it. And then uh, ultimately what happened was uh, my predecessor at Skernick, uh, Mark Hutchins, was leaving Skernick. He had been there. Michael Skernick Wines took on Terry Thies as a national importer in 1999. And Mark was there through the end of 2000. And um, he came into the store. I bought, after this trip with Terry, I bought like like 200 cases, 250 cases of, of German wines. And I was like, oh my God, I'm going to lose my job over this because this is a lot. For the store, not for, for the you. store. Yeah, yeah, I was like, yeah. the, you know, this is a lot of inventory. But but you were just, you loved it. I loved it. And I was like, there's so much application here for food. Um, it was one of the most versatile uh, of all of, of wines for food. And I was just like, I have to, I have to make a statement. And so I really went heavy and I was buying dry and half dry and Cabinet Spitlisa, not a lot of Auslese. And I was buying from almost everybody that I could get some. I was buying from Valkenberg. I was buying from Rudy Wiest. I was buying from Terry. Um, Do you feel like going all in is a stale strategy? Like if you walk into a store and you're like, God, they have a ton of German Riesling. There must be something to it. Is that a sales strategy and a part of the store? It is. Because I feel for, like for that's what was. you did with champagne too, yep. right? Exactly. You're like, oh, I'm not going to just get three and be like, hey, you should really try one of these three that are in a corner. You like blitzed it. You know exactly. what I mean? And is that the move? You're just like, oh, I'm all in. And then that's I, how you sell it. I think you have to be. And then you have to also understand that there are going to be categories that are going to suffer for that. And and you have to then be willing to explain that to whoever's coming in as, as to why. So, I mean, there were... Australia, for me, was one of those categories when I was at that store. And this was before... It, Australia kind of got really hot and then fell off almost, yeah. as, almost off, as quickly. Off the cliff, yeah. Yeah. Um, but, you know... So I was, I was, yeah, I think that's a good way to put it. I was very invested in the success of those things. And I would use, I would use kind of the other kind of uh, volume categories, California Chardonnay and Merlot, um, those types of things to fund the inventory on everything else. And um, so anyway, that's, that's kind of how I went about it. And um, so Mark Hutchins came in and he said, he saw all that inventory. He's like, I've never seen a store like this with all this German wine. And, yeah. I, was, and I was like, yeah, well, must have been flipping I'm out. like, I'm doing a tasting this weekend and I'm going to try to do a tasting until I sell it. And, and it, it came in right in October and, um, I had Thanksgiving and Christmas and the, the store, I was able to sell so much. I was so happy because it was not as hard as I thought it would be. I thought this is going to be an uphill uh, pull your teeth out battle of trying to get people to understand what the label means, how to, how to, what, what the wines taste like. I, I wrote a whole newsletter on how to read, how to read the labels and the different regions and the different wines that I was purchasing and selling. And, and then, but the, the best thing is to get wine in people's mouths. That's the, yeah. that's the best Just strategy. Just open bottles. Exactly. And so I did that and I was able to sell about half that inventory in two months after getting it. And then 
um, was able to do even a little bit more before I was out. I was like, did okay, you have this- regular customers that just called you and it's like, Kevin, just send me some what you believe in? I mean, how else can you do that? You know what I, I mean? I did, but this was also before the internet was huge. So I didn't really have a big internet mailing list or anything like that. I, I reached everybody like- through a newsletter. So sure. it, was, it was a little bit, it's a like different Kermit time. Style. Yeah. 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 So. And had you been reading uh, the Ter- Terry Thies catalogs at that time or? No, I never had one. My first time I read a Terry Thies catalog was when I started working at Skernick. Wow. Right. So Mark then said, hey, I'm leaving. And I, I think leaving Skernick. Leaving Skernick. Yeah. And I, I would like you to come interview for the job. And Well, that was cool of him to put that together. It was very nice. And and he, and he I said, I would love to do that. And um, I didn't know who Michael and Herman Skernick were at all because yeah. they didn't really have, a, a, they didn't have much of a, of a national presence. They, they had received a food and wine uh award for best importer of the year and, and around that time 90 mm-hmm. i don't remember i think it was 99 or 2000 i can't remember but they're in new york and you're in ohio and- exactly i just didn't know them but i knew terry and so i called terry and i asked about you know a little bit about this and i was i was a little bit shocked when i got to new york to interview and uh, terry is nowhere to be found <laughs> he's he's totally gone i'm have to interview with michael and herman and um it was a it was a very good experience and then i was i was what was that experience like I mean, come on, it's the start of a 12-year relationship. How did it go down? It was, I mean, they can be intimidating, I think. To, Is that true? To interview with. and But they were, Michael was also very kind of disarming in his... Um, he squeezed my nipple the other day. Is that, did he do that to <laughs> he you? He did not well? do that to okay. me. Okay. But he was... He asked I, permission first. I remember then. he was wearing, I'll never forget the interview because I, I, I had a suit and tie on. Yeah. I was like, okay, if I'm going to go to New York, I need to, you know, dress yeah, the part. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. You know, and I walk. Well, in you're and, a, a snappy dresser anyway. You know what sometimes I mean? Sometimes. Oh, come on, for, dude. For, I, well, like for tasting. You are a snappy dresser. Okay, here's my philosophy on that. I think if you're going to do a wine tasting, mm-hmm. part of that experience is theater. Uh huh. Okay, it's a lot of. Did you approach it that way at that's, retail too? That's kind of how I. No, in retail, I, I wore work clothes because yeah. I was carrying were boxes, boxes around. You know. So, um, but Michael was wearing cut jeans that had holes in them yeah. and, a, and a t-shirt, you know, with a little, you know, coffee stain or something on it. I was like, what is going on here? And I remember after, after we finally went through all the negotiations of the job and the offer, I, I wrote to him and I said, just one more question, you know, what is the dress etiquette in the office? Right, right, because, right, right. Because you were wearing something and I was wearing something totally else, something right. totally different. I need to know what, what you need to expect of me. And it was, it was kind of funny, but we, what was... What was interesting was that I had, um, through my retail days at, at Hills Market, I was able to make connections kind of all over the country. Sarah Floyd was somebody who was, um, became a very good friend of mine. She was, the at the time, the national sales manager for Martine's Wines. Oh, okay. And so she and would come to Ohio. Reyes and- exactly. So I, I got Reyes from her. I got Henri Jaye from her. You know, so she would come to Ohio. She'd stay at my place. And and then I would cook dinner. We'd have a big dinner. You know, I, yeah. it, was always, it was always centered around still the big dinner party thing. And... Um, which I've, I, I've been to at your houses today, and yeah. they're great. Yeah. <laughs> and then, um, so I met then Raj Parr that way. Oh, okay. And so, you know, I and was able to get some wines in Ohio that they were having a hard time getting out in San Francisco. So, like, producers like uh, Henri Bonneau, producers like um, um, Joseph Roti from Gervais Chambertin, you know, I would buy those and then sell them to Raj or sell them to some, Sarah was at Postino for a while. And I had, Smart you know, I, I had a way to kind of, make connections with different people around the country. Yeah, but a lot of people would have just like stayed in their little cubicle and never like popped but I, their head I needed, out. I needed some of that because it wasn't, Ohio wasn't offering a whole lot in that in that way. I had a very good friend. You needed people to talk to about wine. Exactly. I had a very good friend named Matthew Citriglia who was working for um, a distributor called Vintage and still is working there. And 
he approached me and kind of said, look, I'm studying for MS. Let's do, let's study together. And I had no interest in doing MS because I wasn't, I wasn't working in a restaurant. One, two, sure. they were do, they had a whole cigar program at that time. That was, I, had, I remember that. I had no interest in that. And, um, you got to hit it from the base, the exactly. foot of right. the cigar when exactly. you pull it out. Yeah. <laughs> See, I don't even know that. And, um, and so I wanted to stay for MW. So we kind of wrote wrote a syllabus together and kind of did a two year syllabus program of what we were going to do. And we approached it very much like like how my seminars were run in in college, which was that we would all present a paper. We'd all write a paper on whatever topic it was. It could be, let's say, you know, like Merceau, Shoshana Motoshe, Pliny Motoshe, and then we'd each then write a paper on those. We talk about you know trellising systems, soil types. Um, the climate of that area, the top producers, the up and coming producers, um, Sounds like great, great vintages. Way to learn. It was a fantastic way to learn. And then we'd all have to bring a bottle that day that we would meet once a week on a Wednesday. We had a very uh, friendly restaurant to uh, this study group. And so we would meet in their PDR every, every Wednesday night and we would present the papers, then taste those wines representative from those regions. And then we all had donated about 36 bottles of just mixed stuff, but it was all kind of you know, uh, classic grape varieties from classic regions. We didn't do anything crazy. Like, not like this wine here, this Abalonga that sure. we're trying right now. Yeah. We, we wouldn't do something like that. We would do, you know, it'd be like Chevrolet Chambertin. It would be like, you know, Erzgeberg Vergarten Riesling. Sure. Benchmark stuff. And then after we would present those papers, then we would do a series of blind tastings and go through the, you know, the, the whole kind of, this is the color, this is the, what it smells like, this is how, what it tastes like, and then, and then write down what we thought it was. And so it was a very, it was a great way to learn. Yeah, but he was, Matt, and Matt has became a master sommelier, and I think he was in charge of the education program for the MS program last year, or maybe this year, I'm not sure. Oh, okay. He's still, he's doing very well. You're doing the papers, and you're thinking, he goes in one direction for MS, and what are you thinking about? Like, uh, what was your next thing then? Well, I wanted to do MW, and I think think part of that was a holdover from college, and wanting to make the wine business then seem, at least to me, more... Kind of academic focus. Yeah. Or, and legitimate in some yeah, ways. Yeah, okay, okay. And so I kind of moved from the whole kind of grand dinner thing, and I, I dabbled in antiques. You know, I could have gone in different ways. I, I was cooking. I was. I thought about coming to east to the CIA. I mean, I I consider wine lucky to have you because I feel like it's very easy that you could have gone in a lot of different ways because you're a smart guy <laughs> and but you bring a lot. I'm of... interested by lots of different things too, yeah. and so it's kind of hard to just like limit and say it's hard when you're in your 20s and say. I'm going that way. Yeah. At least it was for me. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Maybe other people are much more clear-headed than I was. But for me, I was kind of, I, I wanted I wanted to deal in antiques. And I started doing that, actually. I started buying and selling. And, and really, I didn't have a storefront. I was doing everything kind of word of mouth and to different, I would, I would buy in the South and I'd resell in the North. You know, so I was doing different things like that. And but it seems like put, you always had a, 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 I don't know how to say, but an eye for the national market. In a way, it's kind of like you were cut for the job that you ended up doing because you would resell wine to different markets. You would sell. I never even thought about it that way. You know I what think, I mean? I think that's yeah, even it's with true. the music and then here mm-hmm. I'm here, so I'm going to eat barbecue and then I'm going to go right. there. And you know what I mean? Like you're looking at what's available in one spot. I mean, in a way, that's the classic importer model, but you. You're today kind of a walking encyclopedia of what's available in different states and the market versus regulatory things. That, and, that's the you know. that's one of the greatest things of the job is that you get to learn about who what's trends that are happening in, in a certain part of the country that you don't see here or what's happening sure. here and you can go to another part. You know, it's always 
sometimes distributors don't like to talk about it. But sometimes distributors are very kind of set in their ways and they say, oh, it's apples and oranges. You can't compare me to my neighboring states. You know, it's, it's very different here, et cetera. But on the other side, you know, if you have the, the entire Midwest, for example, that's supporting a certain category that you can track and one state is not, then There's it's probably, it's probably not the wine or the price. It's right. probably the distributor. Sure. It's probably not the customers in that state. It's probably the distributor who's not doing the, method- the right job. The methodology is probably right. not happening. So it's, I think it's part of our job to look at those trends and then present those trends back to the distributor about what's going on. Right. So then I came. I came here to to Skrinik and started as uh, the national salesperson for Terry Thies. Um And, and what that, was that like? Because that was still that really, was really early in the game. That for was that was grower champagne. And, it was a steep learning curve for me. I, I had been to Germany with Terry. I had been to Austria with um, Vindivino, and um, which I'd been, was a great Austria book. Exactly. It was a great Austria book. That's true. And then I went to. Um, I've been to Champagne several times, so it was. I kind of knew the the players, and I had I sold the wines, but I I didn't. I, I still felt that I was kind of in over my head, you know. And when you start then looking at running inventories and and everything, and, and the business model Terry's business model back then was very different than it is now. Back then, we we really tried to do everything as a direct import, so we would make an offer here in the local market and an offer to a distributor and say, these are all the wines of 400 wines, you know, from Austria and Germany that you can buy. And then the container would come over and sell those wines that way. And it was based on kind of anchor retailers around the country. So like up in Boston, uh, Massachusetts is one of the weird states, uh, legislative wise, as far as the wine is concerned, where you can hold uh, several licenses. You can hold sure. a license as a retailer and as a wholesaler and as an importer. Okay, so it's one of the weird states like that. Like Martinetti would be an example. Exactly. So, you know, our, our anchor retail up there was was Marty's. And then they were, they were also a distributor, was Atlantic Importing. And so Marty's would be kind of the, 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 the store that would put together half of that order. And then they would then, you know, kind of fill it in with other restaurants or other places. And we have that relationship in, in Minnesota with a, one of our biggest single customer is Certix, which is out in, in Minneapolis. I don't know that. Yeah, they they do uh, one container a year, just kind of of German wines, just coming in for them. And I mean, that's a lot of wine. For, that's a lot of wine. You know, and in Chicago it was Sam's before Sam's went under, and in in Louisiana it was Martin Wine Cellar. So we had we had these kind of anchor retailers that would drive the business, and then it really was a retail thing. It for was German especially wine. Germany, and Germany still is a is a retail more retail dominated, and the grower champagnes I'd say is split. Yeah, and Austria is depends on the wine. If it's if, it, but it is skewed more towards the coast, east and west coast, and it is skewed more towards on premise. And is that because there just aren't a lot of German restaurants to really support in the way that Italian restaurants support Italian wine? I that's a great question. I don't I don't know the answer to that question. I think part of it is a cultural thing. There are German wines we sell more in the Midwest because there are more German immigrants there. I think that's part of that answer. Um, I think the sweetness issue is always going to be, um, unfortunately, something that we have to deal with. It didn't used to be. I mean, so let me ask you, though. I mean, I guess we're jumping a little ahead. But it seems like you could have said, like, well, we're going to bring in more dry German Rieslings that are more popular in Germany these days so that sweetness doesn't always have to be an issue. But I feel like Terry's personal viewpoint was to not do that. Um, So, I mean, in a way, yeah, I guess it has to stay a thing, but... It, you're keeping it that way, not like it doesn't have to be. I think the I mean? answer to that is is pretty complicated. One, one, we are bringing in a lot more dry German wines sure. than we ever have before. You brought in Dunoff and, and yeah, like Gigi. And, 
Well, from Don, Dunhoff is a very good example. I mean, almost over a quarter of our sales from Dunhoff now are dry wines. Is that true? Yeah. Wow. So, I mean, that's growing more and more. And Lights is another example where it used to be only the fruity range. Now with Lights, Lights is one of the most famous producers in Germany for dry. Um, and Is that true? Yeah. Oh, I didn't know that. He's known, he's known better over there for dry than he is for fruity. Do you find that to be a strange dichotomy, like the local market versus the export market and just how people perceive producers for Germany? Yes, I, I do find it to be weird because it, what, 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 who's famous over there is not necessarily who's famous here. Sure. Right? Because, because access here is part of the game or part of the issue. Um, back to the dry thing, though. I think the other issue is that um, global warming and climate change has really changed the quality of dry German wines. They are... What's possible. Exactly. So, I mean, and that's the weird side of that whole climate change debate. But um, Germany being such a northern... Uh, growing climate, having warmer summers, longer summers, uh, is allowing grapes to get a little bit riper and make and people. And also, I think that the um, the technology, as far as what they know about how to make dry wines, is getting better and better. Sure, they've had a few so, more vintages under the belt right. since Charter first. So we, we are bringing in more of those things, and um, and I, I think the days, I think those the days of like sweet or German wines with residual sugar, like it was, and up until World War II. Those days are probably gone as far as like pricing is concerned. Like if you look, if you look at old menus, I remember when I first moved to New York in two thousand one, there was a at uh, Bryant Park over here at the at the uh, New York Public Library. They had a whole exhibit on turn of the century menus, and it was a fascinating exhibit. Just to, one, just to see what people were eating back then, but then also to see what people were drinking and what the prices were. So the the, the wine lists were full of of not only scotches and bourbons and whiskeys, but also Madeiras, cordials, and then a lot of German wine, and then claret and a little bit of burgundy really wasn't known that well, but Sauterne was famous, Tokai was famous, a lot of Hungarian wines. Because um, it was closer, it was more linked with Austria at that time, like the Austro-Hungarian Empire. I think that's part of it, and I think the other thing was that sweetness was, this is, this is the pre-Splenda sweet and low era. This is when sugar and sweetness were luxurious items mm -hmm. you know so having a wine with residual sugar was luxury. was luxury yeah you know and uh it was also the, the time of more german restaurants in new york I that's think. true like more big time german restaurants exactly you know? I, yeah, yeah. I, I find that a fascinating study too just to see because you know now you can buy like 90 reyes like 1990 reyes at, at auction for like 80 bucks mm -hmm. and you're like you what know? happened to that? <laughs> yeah what happened to that market mm -hmm. you know crazy so you're you're in New York. You're working for Terry. The model is kind of changing on you. You're fighting a grower champagne bottle. The the model is changing in the sense that the big retailers are becoming fewer and far between. Okay, so it's you know like Sam's, like I mentioned in Chicago, used to be a major player and no longer is for our wines. Um, they still buy, but not not like they used to when it was different uh, owners. And so it's a, it's what's what, what is what has grown is the on premise side. And so what, what I did, one of the first things I did when I got there was I said to Terry, you know, we, we need to have more, more wines available more often. You know, we can't just rely on this small group of, you know, stocked items and then make everything available to everybody else only twice a year. Because it was, it was too, 
too limiting of, as far as what we could sell. So was that the development of the what's called the core list? Exactly. And was that for restaurants to pour by the glass, basically? It was for restaurants to pour by the glass. It was for it was for distributors, mostly for distrib In the local market, it was for that. It was for restaurants to pour by the glass. And so they wouldn't have to change the price because we gave them a pre-arrival price if they bought on DI, and then the price went up when the when that was over, right? So and it, for distributors, it approximated if they were buying direct because when people buy wine from us on a direct container, obviously it's a lower price because we don't have to pay to have it come into our warehouse, be handled by our warehouse, and then shipped out again. So um, we've actually changed that even more. We do now a euro price list for distributors when they want to buy direct as opposed to a dollar one so that they even have even more to play with on an exchange rate. Um, so that the core list was like... Uh, took a long time to develop. We had to try different things, you know, what what works, what doesn't work. We had like different price structures depending on how much you bought. That didn't work at all for national customers. They wanted, uh, distributors wanted one price and one price only. And then, so we ultimately settled on a way to kind of give a free good or something like that for, for a distributor, which is legal for us to do out, you know, we can't do that in New York. In, it's illegal, York, but, right. but for other states, it's not a problem. That's amazing. You yeah. know what I mean? That Yeah. And uh, so we started stocking more. That was the most important thing. And the, the Corliss has now expanded to almost 80 different items. Wow. Not including champagne. Yeah, and, I don't think it was that big when I first started. I, no. I and like then maybe 20 or something. And then even now uh, with a producer like Dunhoff, he, I have nothing from Dunhoff on the Corliss because it everything, out. it all sells out anyway. Um, but Boy, I still what stock, a, what you know, four to five. He's got yeah. behind him. You know, everybody just clamors after it. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Like uh, at the tasting the other day, it was gone. The bottles, yep. you know, people go right for it. I was happy he brought his ice wine, which is, you know, he only made 40 cases of that. And he, yeah. he was like, do you want me to bring this? I was like, you know what? No one gets to try that. Yes, please bring that. And he was, they're generous that way. They're, you know, that's really nice of them to bring enough for New York and for San Francisco to, to try. As a person, I like Helmet. Like mm -hmm. as a guy that's a big famous winemaker, no ego. You no know what I mean? All. Really humble. I remember I was He doesn't like, like to speak English, but he actually, his English is pretty good. Uh, but he speaks so. when he starts to drink. So, oh, is that true? <laughs> so I know that I'll actually have good conversations with him if, I, if he's drinking with me while I'm, while I'm tasting with him. So. I was really nervous and I was like, hey, uh, you know, I don't want to say your last name wrong. You know, is it, is it Donhoff? Like I'm saying, is it Donhoff? Uh, you know, and he said, don't worry about it. You know, actually it's, it's true. My mother is from a different part of Germany and she always says our name wrong. So I'm totally, <laughs> I'm totally used to. I haven't heard that story. That's yeah, great. it's crazy, right? Yeah, she's not from the Naha, and she says it with her dialect. And, yeah. and uh, he's like, ah, even the old, my family says it wrong. So no one, I was like, oh, jeez. Seems like a very humble thing to say for a yep. famous dude. You mm -hmm. know what I mean? So, uh, I mean, w was there a period of time where some of those Corliss items were having to get closed out, though? I feel like sometimes the, the closeouts for these German wines would be, like, huge. Or was that just a function of, like... That, of that was in the beginning. And then um, most of the closeout things that we had to do in the local market have nothing to do with the core list. Those are typically orders for for people that then don't take their order. Oh, you're talking about me. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not. Okay. Yeah, yeah no, I'm talking I about know. you. <laughs> okay, that's fine. I can take the hit. Yeah, but, yeah. you know, sometimes we'll, we'll have something that comes in in May and then, you know, it takes it takes somebody, you know, two to three months to take it. And we'll give them, typically we'll hold things for a long time. Um, Paul Greco is a good example. He was he was somebody that was really doing important things with German and Austrian wines at a high-end restaurant, Gramercy Tavern. It was important for us that those wines were on that list. And so we had to had to kind of change our thinking and our rules and say, okay, 
it's it's more important that we hold these and that they're listed than it is that we close them out to somebody else. Because that's a very high profile poor exactly to this day. I mean, it's a big deal if somebody uh, get a placement in Gramercy. Mm-hmm. I think for and then Juliet's kind of continued on with that, which is great too. So, and uh, you know, speaking of Paul, it can't have been a small thing that he ended up doing the summer of Riesling and really bringing in a focus on Riesling, a lot of which was German. Uh, it seems like it plays right into you know helping develop that broad swath of research. I think interest. so too. It's it's done a lot. I mean, I think it's happening in other parts of the country. What's exciting for me is to see how it's working there. You know, so uh, like a market like Austin, Texas, um, you may have, you know, nine restaurants that are doing it. And that doesn't sound like a lot, but, you know, in Austin, having nine high-profile restaurants doing summer of Riesling is a big deal, you know? And to see how that every year it gets bigger and bigger and bigger is exciting. And, and people are doing all different types of Rieslings. We're, I'm actually kind of changing, we're changing our DI cycle a bit just to make, make things go faster so that we can have more wines of the newest vintage in the market in springtime to be here for summer Riesling. Wow, that's amazing that it's actually affecting the market that way. I mean, it's, it's that and it's also that we want it to go faster. Yeah. We think that the DI process, I think, is can be a little bit burdensome when you have a buyer making a choice in late January and not getting the wines until May. That's too long. It, yeah, know, it's hard you to want plan those out wines, that far. Yeah. Like, and say like, well, four months from now, I'm really going to want exactly. this. You know, I mean, you can do it, but it's not. So the, the impetus for all this is that issue, is mostly that issue, to make them shorter and faster um, and then spread them out so there's more time between the two. What, what else have you found that works or doesn't work at a national level now that you represent Skernik across the country? I would say education is one of the biggest biggest issues. That's always been a signature issue for you. Right. It started with champagne mostly, and it was um, in 2003 is when I first started with this. And the, uh, Andrew Jeffords' book, The New France, came out in 2002, which was a totally influential book on, on me. And, and I think the entire market learned a lot from him. He was the first to really look at Champagne in a with a modern eye and kind of say, this is what's happening over there. You, you guys don't know about it because the marketing tells you something totally different. These are the biggest problems in Champagne. These are the players that are doing interesting things. And he was the first to really kind of pull the veil off that region. And for me, I was looking at 03 and I was looking at my sales and I was like, oh my God, I have to do something because we had come off of selling the 01 uh, vintage in, Champ- in uh, Germany and Austria. And in Germany, it was a legendary Huge vintage. Thing, so yeah. we had a, an amazing 2002. A lot of in people sales. probably came in on that. Exactly. And then in 2003, you know, it was it was waning a little bit. We were selling O2s. It was, you know, they weren't as highly regarded. And I was like, I need to make up money. And the only way I'm going to be able to make up the volume here and value is to is to do champagne because it's higher average cost per case. What if and you it was a, and it was the fourth that. quarter? What if you'd been like, you know what? Instead of thinking about this, I'm going to go get a sandwich and play pinball. Like the whole <laughs> whole the whole country would be different right now if you had, you know what I mean? You well, ever think about that? I haven't thought about that, but I was just like, it was the fourth quarter. I didn't have much time, so I, I'm like, I got to write this seminar. So I wrote a seminar on champagne, and um, I had I had some markets where I had a very good working relationship with a, with the owner of that distributor. And those markets, you know, sometimes New York is leading the the trends, and yeah. sometimes the trends are coming 
from other places and coming to New York. And which we never like to admit here, but but it's it, but it's true, true. you yeah. know. And so I was I went down to Charleston with a very good. He's become since become one of my very good friends, um, Harry Root, who owns Grassroots Wine down in Alabama and also in South Carolina. And I was like, I need to, I want to do a champagne seminar. I want, and I need to try it out in your market. Are you are you cool with that? And he's like, yeah, that's fine. So what I did is I sent down a bunch of wine. And, and, I, and it was kind of a controversial seminar in the sense that I, I did a blind tasting against competitor stuff. Yeah. Okay. What I did is I did it like I did a, a introduction on the different regions and did two tastings of Cote de Blanc champagnes, then Valley de la Marne, then Montaigne de Rennes. And then I did a blind tasting and talked about the different problems in champagne. And we would do like a Cote de Blanc and a Valley de la Marne and a Montaigne de Rennes. And we'd do like three grand marks or a gauchant and two grand marks, whatever. And then pull the, the foil off the bottles and people were shocked. And this was back when, you know, Grosch Champagne was kind of, it was fringe back then. Yeah, it was like uh, homebrew home beer. Exactly. Be like, then, oh, there could be no quality to that. And then I spent the last third of the seminar talking about how to sell Grosch Champagne. So mm -hmm. giving giving mm -hmm. retailers and on-premise people different ideas about how to approach it. And, and what did you say? Um, that's changed over the years too. Yeah. So, you know, when it first started out, it was very simple strategies, things like um, how to do a set and how to organize by region and how to um, how to work on pricing and, and, you know, don't put a grand mark next to a grower because people always go for the label that they recognize the most or the name they recognize the most. Um, retail strategies also were, you know, do you have to open bottles. You really have to open bottles and do tastings and do blind tastings. Um, we also talked about where the intrinsic value was in champagne. So the 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 grower tete de cuvées from growers are always going to be the best values because mm -hmm, mm -hmm. the 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 cost of production is really accurately in that bottle. Unlike a Grandmark, you know, big house champagne now, where a lot of it is marketing. You have You're labels, marketing, yeah, exactly. And um, for the on-premise stuff, we talked about lots of different things. One one of them was doing different glasses. You know, the flute is just one of the worst glasses on the planet. I think I don't like it at all. And, and there are some good ones out there now, but they have a much wider and, and broader coupe. They're not as, they're mm -hmm, not mm -hmm. as narrow. Um, and we would recommend you use a white wine glass. We talked about different, different ways to use it in the dinner. And one of the biggest things we had to get people to think about was not to think of champagne as a celebration drink only, was to think about champagne as, as a great versatile food wine and to re recommend it with things that were main course things in, a, in, a, in the dining experience as opposed to, hey, you're out for a dining experience, you're celebrating... So Had to start with champagne. Not just making it about celebration. Right. Make it about every day. The the real experience of, of food and wine. And so that was another strategy. We talked about different ways to put things on the wine list. You know, where how to group things on the wine list where either put it by region or or put it by um you know, village where they're coming from. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, we even then started recommending putting disgorgement dates on on the wine list. There was a dovetail here in New York. We didn't recommend this, but she, she did it on her own. Dovetail did a, a wine list where they had two special clubs. Same, it was both O4, it was O2 Gutorb special club. Um, one was disgorged in one year, one was disgorged the second year, both the same price. You know, well, what does that do? That gets the diner to say, what is this about? What is, right. why, what does this mean? And it allows the Samia to come over and kind of say, this is what it means. This disgorgement is like this. This is like this. It, you know, they're going to be the same vintage, but they're going to be two totally different wines. Do you want to try them both? Glimpsing at the complexity exactly. of the and, issue. And then you could buy two bottles of that instead of one bottle of, of something that's a more yeah, famous brand mark. Yeah, maybe one night, and then the next time you come back, right. you try the other one because you're curious. Exactly. And who coined the term farmer fizz? I don't know. I think Terry did. <laughs> 
That's a good term, I think. Yeah. You know what I mean? It sums up a lot because it kind of takes it away from that idea of like luxury champagne mm-hmm. and makes it seem like, hey, fizz, it's a, just fun. And then farmer, you know. I exactly. Think, I think that was a powerful terminology. It's worked. And so the seminars, like going back to that in, in, in Charleston, that's where the first one was. And then that worked well. Um, and then actually it worked a little bit too well. Like is that true? We got in trouble, a little bit in trouble. Um, With quantity issues? Like you didn't no, have enough? Or? Everything was fine, but all the, the, the sommelier culture down there was was pretty tight-knit. And they were, and, and there were there were about five, five or six major players at, at the time. Um, and they were all close. They were all friends. They were all studying together. They were, they were all, you know, they were close. And they all started moving towards this grower champagne by the glass and putting them, you know, around in the restaurants. And like, what happened was, uh, uh, Graham Mark was like, what what happened to our business in Charleston? You yeah, know? And they, well, I saw that in New York. I so saw they had to come, strategy they came, meetings. They came in and they took all in. these people out for, for lunch and like, you know, talking about this. And then these sommeliers were saying, well, what's the disgorgement date? What's the blend? What are the, right. what are the villages that make up this blend? And and the, the rep was just not prepared for those types right, of questions. Right, right, and, the, right. and that's where I think it's working because there's no reason for wine to be mysterious. I think it should be, it should be simple in some ways. It's, it still is about pleasure, you know? Do you think um, one of the big changes is that people now understand a little bit more about the actual process of making wine, whether I, I think that's for definitely champagne true. and people that's are like, oh, true. this is, it's not like an Oz thing. It doesn't just show up from behind the curtain. Like this is how it's made and this is the ramifications of that. And this is how exactly. that plays out. Mm-hmm. Whereas maybe when we first started, it wasn't. Really I, think, I think the organic movements and those movements have done a lot to educate on that, on that regard, which I think is good for all of us, you know? And um, in, you know, because we are here in New York, I'm in New York. I mean, what was the reception with champagne? It seemed like the per se by the glass Chimonet thing was a big deal for you guys. Or... That was a big deal. Before that, however, was uh, Jean-Georges back uh, oh, really? when, I didn't know. when Kurt Eckert was there. They did uh, Chimonet by the glass <clears throat> for a long period of time. And that was one of the first big pours that we we're able to get here. So Columbus Circle was like the, uh, the was. epicenter then, of Gimene in New York. Exactly. And then, um, and then the Per Se pour came later, but that was um, Paul Roberts. I knew Paul Roberts when he was the wine director down at Cafe Annie in Houston. So that's the other great thing about the job is you see people in different stages of their careers and you yeah. can follow them and they can follow you. And I'm sorry and about so, mine. I apologize. <laughs> You've had a great career. Come on. You still are. You're, you're starting a new uh, career in, the, in this. <laughs> and um, so he was like, yeah, I want to do something uh, when I get to Per Se and French Laundry. And it, the, the the port is no longer here at, at Per Se, but it's still at French Laundry out in California. So it's 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 different. Every, and that's good. It's good that you have change and there are more grower champagnes on the market now than ever before. Um, Do you find that challenging now that so many other people are carrying grower champagne besides these, although he really broke the market wide open? I, there are there are challenges to it for sure. Um it's it's still good to have the portfolio the size that we do. We have uh, 16 producers now. Um, it is the largest of all of them, um, and it, it's very diverse, okay? But we're also very focused. We're only Marne department, okay? So we don't have anyone from the Aube or the Cote de Saison. So a lot of the new people that are coming in are coming in from, from the, the Aube, Aube yeah. right? And that that's great. And, and some of those producers we had tried before and decided not to represent, like Lasagna, for example. Um, but I think that's... There's always room for more. There's always room for uh, a different type of wine. I, I'll say that, but then I'll also say 
that I think there's too many wines in the world, but you know, mm-hmm. that's a different that's I a different that's conversation. Very, you know, uh, you could that's a very defendable point. Right, I mean, there's a lot of wine out there. That's true. You know, but what's good for us is that I think we did the majority of the education on the grower champagne. Uh, movement in the United States, which has really benefited us. And I think- They our, associate our, you with the signature yeah, I, I think issue. our portfolio is still kind of the benchmark for that, which I, I'm very proud of. And, and Terry has put together something that's really amazing as far as different styles and different personalities, different terroirs. But then on the other side, there are there are great producers that come in and you're like, wow, that is fantastic. And it's, it's wonderful that that producer is here. Ledru is a great producer, for example, from Bonami. It's a, I, I like different- and what's fun for us also is to then try other people's you things. You really throw Charlie under the bridge because you know he has no quantity on that, right? <laughs> Probably. <laughs> You're like, Ledru is a shrinking estate that That's only right. has two hectares now, and I'm definitely going to recommend you go get some. Exactly. Call Charlie for an allocation. Exactly. I'm just kidding. Uh, but yeah, so, I mean, what happened with Austria? Like, it was so big in the late 90s, 2000. Everybody was pouring a Gruner by the glass, and then... Uh, outside of Nikolayev and a couple other signature names, I feel like the excitement is kind of uh, not well, as bright as it used in, to be. In sales for us, it's still growing. Is that true? Yeah. In fact, we had one year, three years ago, where we sold more more cases of Austrian wine than German wine, which was a first for us. And that was a major issue. We were like, what is going on? You know, Because the Austrian portfolio is smaller than the German portfolio in terms of estates. It is. It's 19 producers for us. And it's 29 for, for the German book. Um, Terry and I go back and forth about that quite a bit because, you know, having, I think having a portfolio that's 20 producers or fewer is, is easier to manage. You can be more nimble. You can. Is that true? I believe so. You can't, when you have sometimes, sometimes having a a book that's too large makes everyone not do the business that's respectable, you know, and you want to make sure that everyone is getting, if they're in the book, you want all of them to be reaping the benefits of being in the book. Do you think that that has hampered other, uh, you know, Italian would come to mind, certain importers mm-hmm. uh, that had large books. Do I think, think so. That that's been a problem for them. I think that's true for almost any portfolio. We do at Skernik, you know, one of the things I've learned from from Michael and Harmon is that you look at you look at the whole thing and you kind of say, okay, this producer's not working for us. Or, or, and you guys have fired producers. You have to. Yeah. You have to. But you can't always, you can't, if it's not working, it's not working. And sometimes, sometimes it's not the wine, sometimes it is the wine. Um, Sometimes it's just that the market is just saying it doesn't, it's not working, you know? And so you just kind of have to then reassess and you either go back to the producer and say, this is why, can you make us a wine that would work? Yeah. Um, Rhein Hessen is an issue, for example, if you want to go back to Germany where we're having the style of, of modern Rhein Hessen wines is either totally dry or yeah. super sweet. Yeah. There's nothing in the middle. So a Spätlese is going to taste like a, a low BA, a high Auslese, and and then everything else is Grosskvex or totally dry. Yeah. And so that whole kind of, you know... What's actually sellable, like the cabinet wine. Cabinet is the most sellable of all German categories. So right. it's like, you know, if you can't make us one of those, then we, we, we're going to have a problem with you as a producer. You know, so then, but then that then becomes a different dialogue. It's like, they're going to say to me, I can't sell that in the German market. So if I make this wine for you, you need to you, buy it you all. You need to buy it all. Right. So then, you know, modern Germany is becoming a little bit more complicated in, as far as how you negotiate with producers, what comes into the market and how all that works. It's a, But that's what's dynamic about it. And I think what, that's one of the things that drew me to wine away from like antiques and food. Another thing was that every year there's something more to learn. There's a whole new vintage to learn. There's a whole new range of things to learn. It's always changing in a very dynamic way. But speaking about that, I mean, those are two markets, Germany and Austria, where people in the local market often want to drink the youngest possible wine uh, in terms of what 
you know, just released vintage. They want to drink it right up. Um, That's a function of, of the Austrian wine culture that was then pushed onto the American culture because the wines would be sold out if they were if they if we waited longer. If you waited, there right. would be so none. that that was a problem um, because the Austrian culture is to drink them like people are bottling the like the 2012. Some easy drinking wines were bottled in December of 2012. Amazing, you know. So I mean, that's how fast. That's just a little bit longer than a nouveau. <laughs> Like a Beaujolais Nouveau, you know what I mean? So it's a little bit crazy in that regard. And and then, and now they're, the best producers are really delaying the release of their top wines. So like, like Nikolaiov. Uh, right, and like Altsinger and, and FX Pickler and uh, Brundemeyer, all those guys are now pushing the Smarogd and the, and the top level wines even one year behind. I see. Just to give them more time. Was that a dialogue you had with those guys or they figured no, out? No, it's something that they wanted to do. One of the first persons to do it actually was Johannes Hirsch. He Hirsch, was right. he was um he did a bottling, I don't know if you remember this in two thousand two. The O 2s yeah. Right, where the one was bottled in April and it said April on the label, and yeah. then one was bottled in September. And um, he just was trying to make the point of a little bit longer lease contact, a little bit more age, makes for a, a different wine. I actually didn't realize that that was a conversation with the local market. I didn't get that part. I yeah. get it. He was trying to show the Austrians in a exactly. way. Exactly. Huh. Okay. Because I, yeah, I do remember that. That was probably one of the first years I was buying Austrian wine and I was confused. <laughs> but, uh, but Austria is still a buyer's market. Yeah. It is not a seller's market. Well, I feel like Terry's always in buyer's markets. When has he ever been in a seller's market? Like, I mean, isn't it a buyer's market to go in and be like, I'm going to take this and this and this and not that. You know, isn't that, that Terry's move? That's I mean, true. You know what I mean? I, I meant I meant buyer's market as in uh, it's easy, it's everything's, it's harder to buy those wines. I meant it in a, the opposite way. Oh, sorry. Okay, I'm so dumb. in Austria, no, you're, you're actually probably right in that, in the way that's said, but like, um, in Austria, they can sell everything pretty much within the country. Okay. And and I, 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 I knew the statistic at some point, but I think it's almost 70%, 75% of all Austrian wines produced are consumed within Austria itself. And we're like that for our wine. So it's not such a weird thing to think. Right. It's not like French people drink a lot of Mandavi. You, you know true. what I mean? <laughs> yeah. Like we do that. Right. You know? I mean. So that's what makes it a little bit difficult getting the wines here with some age on it and, and a little bit more time. And because I was going to say, it hasn't been such a focus where it would be for, say, someone who brings in Barolo or, you know, certainly mm -hmm. Bordeaux. I mean, you're the opposite of C&E. &E. I mean, you did one or two offers of older wines, but in general, it's like, this is the young stuff and mm -hmm. come and get it, you know, DI style. Right. That's true. You know what I mean? We do have some producers that we've asked to hold things for us mm -hmm. and then, then re-release. So here's, for example, has an 03. Has yeah, that was a delicious wine, dude. Right. So and like, was I shocked to see it? Yes, I was. Mm -hmm. yeah, was and good. under Stelvin. Bottled under it Stelvin. It was under Stelvin. So I nine years under that. Stelvin. There was, uh, yeah. That sometimes you can't. Your tastings are too popular. Yeah. I got to tell you, there's <laughs> always a lot of people and there's a lot going on. Is that ever a handicap for you guys? Like, I know it's a great atmosphere and people come in and like, I think everybody the wants we to did go. Last week was, 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 it was obviously successful. 500 people were there, but it's, it, it's a little bit too big. You know, you can't get around to get the wines you want. I think also the fact that we do that tasting in January brings people out because people are kind of like, oh, hey, the holidays are done. I've had a week or two to relax. I'm ready to get back into it again. And so it really brings out more people than when we do like a June tasting, which is the middle of when summer. Everybody's doing it. Exactly. And people are like, I was already at two tastings today and I can't fit in one more. Right. But you know, the champagne thing seems always popular. Like mm -hmm. whenever you guys do a thief champagne tasting, it's like uh, everybody, yeah. people I haven't seen in two years. Like, yeah. you know, <laughs> you know, everybody It's a fun tasting because you get to try the new disgorgements, the new vintages. Um, and we, the producers are being a little bit more generous with their time um, coming over. So almost every other year we'll get them to come over, which is great. 
because oh. otherwise they don't, you know, they, they don't like to travel sometimes, but. Is that true? The Germans and Austrians are always happy to travel. Yeah, they're always here. Exactly. But the French don't really like to get They're over. a little bit more reserved. Let me ask you. Uh, you don't have to answer the question. I think a lot of times the grower champagne versus grand market battle or market share issue or production sales thing is thought of as like uh, David and Goliath. And a lot of times I think that carries through to thinking that these guys are really little guys. But, you know... When I do meet these guys, I get the sense that they're a lot more wealthy than me. Like, I get the sense that certain dude who will go, will name nameless, isn't living in a studio. And, right. like, he probably has a car, and he probably sends his kids to good schools. And is it, are we being oversold on this idea? Because I start to think that maybe these guys are probably millionaires, at least in the land value that they have. That's, am am that, I really, I think that's, am I bleeding for dudes that are millionaires? But hopefully you're not, but yeah. I, Okay, I don't think saying that they're small means that they're poor. I don't, right. They don't correlate. And I think also, I hope people aren't buying the wines because they think they're getting money to someone who needs it rather than I think that big, comes up all the time. You, you don't think, think so? That with growers? Like, hey, you got to help this guy out. You know, I don't like think it's for helping this guy out. I think it's kind of like I'd rather spend my money on someone who's actually doing the farming than, sure, than like sure. a big like multinational conglomerate that also is selling other luxury goods. I think, right, right, I think right. that's a different right. dynamic, but it's not a kind of a rich or poor one. Um, but I... To answer your question, yes, most of these people have had the land in their family for generations. That they own the land, and it's. I think the last statistic I saw was one point two million euro per hectare for Grand Cru. Right. So I mean, you know, you've got someone with seven or eight hectares. Yes, that's a that's a pretty big uh, inheritance. I hear you on that. Yeah. So you know, one of the things I think has really happened with these is that you guys have, in a way, like Kermit was for an earlier generation, become the benchmark for how you build a niche market for what a small importer might do, what's mm -hmm. what's uh, possible, you know, mm -hmm. and kind of an inspiration for a lot of other small importers, whether it be in those same categories or very different categories. And I think a lot of it has to do with getting your own message out through education or through the catalog and saying mm -hmm. like, hey, this is why we think this. Like winning the war of ideas was, I think, always important with these. Exactly. You know, and uh, getting people to th understand the thought process behind the selections, not just the analytics of the selections, not just like pick that 23 bricks, but like I picked this guy because of this greater cultural thing. You mm -hmm. know what I mean? Um, but what are the actual nuts and bolts of making a niche portfolio national? And I ask you because I think you know. Um, before I start in on that, I just want to say yeah. that Another thing that's really helped us is the cult of personality of Terry. Yeah. You can't dismiss that. Terry has a, a, has a following and a, a way of writing that draws certain people in and makes them very loyal. Um, so that cannot be dismissed, I think, to start out. On the nuts and bolts of it, um, I think you need to have – the infrastructure kind of – almost always grows organically. You can't, I think it's very difficult to kind of say, okay, these are the Nielsen rated top 10 wine markets and I'm going to go after them. You know, I, I, th I don't think that ever works. Florida is an example for me with that. You know, Florida is in the top for wine consumption. It has been extremely hard for me to find good distribution in that state. Okay. And that's, that's, that's a function of so many other things besides uh, what we do or what the distributor does. It has a, it, it, there's a lot of things that goes into that issue. And then I can look at a market like, for example, I mentioned Harry Root from South Carolina. It's a, that market way overperforms for what that 
market would normally do in, in a list of rankings. So on the nuts and bolts things, we try to make things as easy for our distributors as possible. That's that's the first thing. Uh, distributors have a lot of suppliers and a lot of demands on their time. And we try to not be in the way. That's the biggest thing. We don't have any requirements as to um, this needs to be X percent on-premise, X percent off. We don't do anything like that because I think most people that are working on a national side understand that every market is is – um, has different things happening in it. One city may be dominated or the, the, the trends are coming from the restaurants and in another city, the trends are coming from the retailers that are being more proactive than the restaurants are because the restaurants maybe there's no sommelier co- uh, um, com- a community there and therefore there's no one really kind of building programs and they're all coming from the retail sets. So we try to then do, when we make offers, we make price lists that are interactive. We have them be interactive as far as linking to websites, to catalogs, linking to producer websites. Um, we, we even offer to do pricing for distributors if they want us to help with pricing. We handle, of course, all the compliance issues. That's the, I mean, every importer would have to do that. We, our compliance program has grown um, from one person to now four people in the time that I've been there. So that's a very important part to make sure you have enough people that can do all the label approvals and all. And every state has a different law. So, you know, if I pay, I've got to pay for the, the, you know, we do the BATF label approval for the, for the national market. But then Ohio says, I, you know, you need to do $25 label registration for the state of Ohio as well. So you have to then register all that. So we have to make sure that all of that is covered so that the distributors only issue is buying wine and selling Selling wine wine. and selling wine. Um, that being said, we do make some requirements of a distributor. We do say that they have to participate in, in the fall DI to do business with us because we think that that's one sales tool, tool that works that they need to work on. Um, and we also, you know, we need to have access to their market with, you know, work with and coming in and helping to like sell. Like if you go in, they need to take you around and show you Exactly. People. And And we also ask to do seminars and to do tastings. And on the tasting side, we do everything for them for that as well. We, we do the tasting book for them. We get that already. All they have to do is hit print. You know, we, we really try to make it easy. Um, the other thing that we do is we, we try to identify um, markets that are interesting or, or a lot of it is word of mouth, okay? So like my colleagues that are other people that run the national markets for other importers, we're always talking to each other. Who who's good in 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 Nebraska? Who's good in in Kansas? And and um and then we get feedback. Oh, this is this is a new distributor that just opened up. You know, you should check them out. And that kind of courting and negotiation sometimes can go on for several years. You know, trying to see where that distributor is going. You know, the first year of being in distribution can sometimes be a very rocky one. Sometimes you want to be on the on the ground level going up. Sometimes you want to come in once they're a little bit more solid. And on the flip side of that, you know, ending a relationship with a distributor is also not the easiest thing to do. And you you have to go about that in a different way also, because you have almost always, they owe you money. And so you need to figure out how to, how to recoup that money before you tell and and how you move to somebody new and how you do a stock transfer. I mean, so those types of things become more and more complicated. And one of the one of the best things that happened to our business actually on the national side was the recession of 2008 that really that true? really helped me a lot because what happened is a lot of the I had I had like four distributors that I had serious concerns about and had had concerns about for over 5 years and the recession allowed all purchasing to slow really really slow down okay um, it allowed them to then catch up on their accounts receivable and that put me in a position where I was saying, okay, I can get their AR down to a certain level, which will then allow me to to make a move. 
To, you know? to cut ties. So, you know, I changed can't. in 2009, I changed in about 21% of our revenue in, in the national market, not including local, just on the national side, just trying to put us in a better position. And then in every one of those, every one of those markets, it's really paid off with the new people we're with. It's really working very well. So it's a complicated thing. But I think all the things that you mentioned at the beginning, doing catalogs, doing press is the other thing that's important too. Press, I think, is in our category... It never comes out on time. That's part of the problem. Like our vintages are typically sold out by the time the press comes out. I see. I see. Um, but you know, when it does come out, it does it does have an influence. Not nearly like it did in, when we had the 2001 German vintage. That was huge. But I feel like Thies, uh, apart from the rest of the Skarnik portfolio, probably gets more press than any other section of it, just by himself. Like he gets a he attracts a lot of press. Or for Champagne, definitely, and then for for Austrian Germany, a little bit here and there. It's it's getting better. Yeah. So, but I think to grow it, you you never know where you're going to meet someone either. You know, my my last year doing Aspen Food and Wine was 2003. That's where I, I ended up with Harry Root from Alabama. He, yeah. He's like, do you have a distributor in Alabama? I was like, no, I don't. He's like, do you want to talk? I'm like, yeah, let's talk. So it's, you know, things like that happen organically. Sometimes they happen in a, in a stronger way. On, on the whole, we try to work with distributors that have the same type of ethos that we do as Skernick, New York. Um, and that means, you know, kind of fine wine quality driven, uh, fairly small family run, you know, try to keep the whole idea of uh, priorities in line. You know, we, we don't want to be with with someone who's huge that's doing tons of volume of stuff and then our, our portfolio is going to be a very small part of that. that. But on the other side, in some markets, those are the only options. Las Vegas, that's basically your option. Florida, that's Florida. basically your yeah. option. Um, so you, there are some markets where you just don't have a choice. Uh, Kevin, you've been around a lot of wine. Uh, any special particular moment really stand out for you as something that you like to think back to now and again about why you do this job? I think when I interviewed with Michael and Herman, one of the questions that they asked me was, um, why, why do you want to be here? Yeah. And my answer to that question at that time is this, probably the same answer that I would give you now, which is that I, I wanted to be closer to the production side of wine. I, I never really had somebody in the wine business that I wanted to be who was on our side of it. You know what I mean? I didn't want to be, I, I didn't, there wasn't a Samia I, I aspired to be, okay? There wasn't a, a wine rep I wanted to be. There wasn't like a, I didn't, this side of the business for me is, is a lot of fun and it's where I want to be. But on the other side, what I, I wanted to get closer to was the people that were actually making wine. Yeah. And to actually then have a dialogue amongst those different producers on what they're doing and why they're doing it. And they're all so different and why they make the choices that they make as far as when to harvest or what, what yeast or all these things are, are very different. Um, and I've, I've, I have the great fortune in this job of working extremely close with many, many producers and many producers that are, you know, extremely important to the world of wine. Yeah. I've um, seen you share milkshakes with these guys, yeah. like the same milkshake. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Two straws. That's true. And, um, you know, it enabled me once to get a vineyard over in Germany. And so now I have some of that, some of that desire is is satisfied. I think I told you that, you know, my, my family comes from farm stock on one side and then kind of house building on the other. And so working with my hands was always a very important thing. So having a desk job is not is not ideal for me, but this job is perfect because I'm traveling, I'm, I'm seeing new things, I'm in Europe and, and having the vineyard also gives me, you know, 
creativity and some something fun to play with and having. Where's the vineyard? It's in uh, Rudesheim. And how long have so you been there? So uh, since 2002. Yeah, because that's that's Light's territory. That's right. He does. It's all. It's under his label. I would, it, my name would never be on that bottle ever, <laughs> because it's. I don't think that's right. I happen to own the land, but that doesn't mean that you know. I'm, I'm certainly not in that cellar every week because I'm, sure, I'm here. Sure. You know, so what I do for that wine is we just talk about the general style of that wine, and then I do the blending with him, and and I'm over there three or four times a year to work there. But that's a, that's sounds that's great. Not that's not me making a wine. That's plus he's me super showing nice. Up. Exactly. So that, that's the Rudesheimer Berg Kaiser Seinfeld. So that's the one that he that he does. I did not know that. Yeah, Kevin Pike, you are a man that I learn a lot from every time I speak with you. Thank, Thank you. Thanks for much. having me on. Thank you. Kevin Pike of Skernick Wines, a national sales manager and a man who has made many things happen in a short amount of time. All Drink to That is hosted and produced by myself, Levy Dalton. Aaron Scala has contributed original pieces. Editorial assistance has been provided by Bill Kimsey. The show music was performed and composed by Rob Moose and Thomas Bartlett. Show artwork by Alicia Tenoyan. T-shirts, sweatshirts, coffee mugs, and so much more, including show stickers, notebooks, and even gift wrap, are available for sale if you check the show website, alldrinktothatpod.com. That's I-L-L, drinktothatpod.com, which is the same place you'd go to sign up for our email list or to make one of the crucially important donations that help keep this show operating. You can donate from anywhere using PayPal or Stripe on the show website. Remember to hit subscribe or to follow this show in your favorite podcast app, please. That's super important to see every episode. And thank you for listening.